Hello, everybody. This is Pork from Nightwatch Games. You're listening to the Nightwatch Games podcast. Next to me is Brenda. Hello. And we have an esteemed guest with us today, Mr. Glenn Hahn. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Pork. Thank you. I'm a storyteller. I've been writing on an amateur level since I was really, really young. Um, focused primarily on uh, strange fiction, horror, uh, fantasy, both high and low, and uh, mystery stories. Um, I'm a Houston native. I have a beautiful wife and two children, and currently work as a uh, military contractor. What do you do when you say you're a gamer? I, I absolutely love tabletop gaming. Your traditional tabletop RPGs like Dungeons and Dragons, Mutants and Masterminds, World of Darkness, like Kids on Bikes or D20 Modern. I like to focus more on uh, horror, fantasy, and uh, and mystery stuff. Is there a, a common thread through the types of games that you play? And do they revolve around a narrative? I love conflict. About a lot of parts of my personality, I, mean, I love combative sports. I love uh, whenever... Whenever you have, you know, this great big bad evil that uh, face off against and putting a face to that, having the group of characters come together to 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 face off against what may seem insurmountable. So whenever I whenever I try to make a big bad, I have this gigantic bat, right? And I'm just swinging it as hard and fast as I can to shock in all the players and my job as a GM, in order for the characters to have fun, is to graze the hairs on the end of their nose. That way they can feel the thrill but aren't crushed by the blow. I've got a lot of hairs at the end of my nose. You wouldn't have to swing that hard. I'm telling you. <laughs> so how big is your gaming group right now? I have a few. I have uh, an online uh, uh, group that has met for uh, the past four years online. We've played a variety of games, primarily World of Darkness. We meet weekly. It is a, a strange and wonderful group uh, where we have, um, of course, one of my players is from the UK. There are like three people that have stayed consistently. Um, we've had as many as seven and as few as three. Is your wife one of them? Does she no, play with you? She no, does not. No, she doesn't. Sadly enough, my my wife is uh, doing her uh, PhD in counseling, counselor education over at UTSA. So it takes up a lot of her time. She's actually doing her dissertation right now. There's an interesting video cast on YouTube where a, I believe it's a counselor, correlates the lessons of counseling and role-playing, and he dovetails those two things together and shows lessons learned from one and how it applies to the other. My, uh, my wife actually talked to me about that. The guy wrote a paper on it. Essentially, he used it as a form of group therapy. How did you uh, form your initial gaming group the the one that i have here at night's watch um they that one i formed on uh basically the night's watch facebook group uh gabe shannon elena and um uh malcolm malcolm uh those are uh those are the the uh four core people of the group that have sticked around for quite a while they're just really awesome people um but yeah it, it's uh, the facebook groups are great uh for that i've known a lot of players that have gotten stuff from your local gaming board you know lfg looking for group i have to say that one of my best friends was generated from a looking for players board trying to get a group together i must have been about 24 years old and this guy ended up being awesome and we've been great friends ever since so it still has value I think that's one of the major components that we bring to the community is a place for people to come and have those initial interactions mm -hmm. with strangers mm -hmm. in a safe place 
so that they can determine whether or not they ever want to see that person again. You know, there's a lot of stuff that comes to the table, a lot of personalities. You figure out who works, who doesn't. You're like, hey, you know what? That guy's a really good RPer. Hey, that person has some really, really interesting ideas tactically. But then you're able to pick and choose mm -hmm. uh, folks that groove with your with your gaming style. And those that don't. Hey, that guy snorts air out of his nose every five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> don't want to play with that guy. We do have a program that called the GM's Watch. And the idea behind the GM's Watch was a introduction into role-playing games as provided or as presented by a vetted semi-professional game master who knows what it is to manage a group around the table, knows what it is to manage the story and character development and plot and conflict and resolution and all the cool things that role-playing games do. If a person was to enter a role-playing game scenario and their game master was not experienced, it could be one of the worst experiences that they've ever had. And how many players have we lost to that initial experience of like, oh, if that's role-playing, I'm not doing that. That's that's ridiculous. I have seen uh, players that have said, no, I can't do D&D uh, &D because, you know, everybody who's playing is just trying to win. My brother, Andrew, he didn't ever want to play D&D because one time back in high school, uh, there was a GM who wasn't in it to present a story or present a setting or anything like that to, you know, have this cooperative fun that a tabletop game is supposed to be. Instead, it was, ha, 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 I brought up my biggest, scariest monster and you can only take one turn, but mine can take two. And it's just unfair. It just sounds like a power trip. It, it sounds like a video a, game, actually. That's what tabletop gaming isn't is it's not necessarily a video game mind you i mean video games have been influenced heavily heavily by tabletop gaming because of you know just the, the math behind it for goodness sakes you know uh with rng tables and all that player involvement inside of video games come from the tabletop i think even with uh, the roots of uh like war gaming and stuff like that we're playing twilight 2000 which is an interesting game at the moment because the setting is Poland, mm -hmm. the Russian army is invading after a small nuclear exchange with Warsaw and NATO pact allies, sort of post-apocalyptic. And the game starts where you're an army officer, army enlisted guy in a base in Poland, and the big red army is on your doorstep, and the game starts, and you, you've got to run. Mm -hmm. And you're running across a landscape that's been decimated by nuclear war and the infrastructure and all that kind of stuff has fallen down. And it seems like a great role-playing game setting. The weird part is after you play the setting, you turn on the news and you see the exact same scenario happening over in the Ukraine, the exact same thing. So it, it's really weird for us to be playing this game and then seeing the real world reflect it. At one point, our GM was like, you know, I don't really feel super comfortable playing a game out of things that are really happening. I don't want to make light of anybody's suffering. And I countered with the idea of, one, we're all adults. We can empathize with what's happening in the real world, and we're not mistaken about what's real and what's not. So there's no confusion there. But two, this is a prime and probably unique opportunity to play the what if. Mm -hmm. What if I was in Ukraine right now? And what if I happen to have some type of hunting rifle in my house? And what if uh, the Russian unit was rolling through my town? Mm -hmm. What would I do? 
And right. you, you can play that out. And I, if the GM is really good, they can give you some very realistic consequences. And I don't think it's making fun of anything. I don't think it's making light of anything. I think it's a great exercise in empathy. Um, storytelling at the table is it not you know, creation for the joy of creation, but more for the sake of interpretation of the story tropes taken in the form of the lens of the setting. Um, the intimate nature of stories allows readers and listeners opportunities to explore pathways uh, to happiness through simulation uh, with little no risk to themselves. Uh, the beauty of the act of cooperative storytelling um, allows the group as a whole to submit in those group mores that, you know, if in the case that you are in a apocalyptic situation, like in the middle of Eastern Europe during an invasion, you may be able to, I guess, play out what you really feel about the situation. The spent in the group mores as a, that one might not be able to do uh, due to access or uh, a lack of opportunity or setting for that matter. Um, it allows a, a guarded vulnerability with which you can allow aspects of your personality to shine through the characters that you play, uh, gather information about yourself, or you explore the inner personas, the caretaker, the warrior, the philosopher, the monster, etc. It's like, you know, we don't tell the stories, the stories tell us. Storytelling has been around for millennia. It's probably the thing that we did around our little campfires and caves. Even longer for the Irish. We make guards up. Uh, there is a author that I recommend that you check out. His name is Joseph Campbell. He wrote a book in 1943 called The 10,000 Faces of the Hero. Mm -hmm. And it talks about the history of storytelling, epic long journey of what it is to become a hero and mm -hmm. why we identify with a hero and why heroic stories have got a longevity to them. And you see that template of the 10,000 Faces of a Hero in such movies such as uh, Star Wars, The Gladiator, any of the big blockbuster hero movies follow that same template. So it's interesting if you're interested in storytelling and the arc of a hero, 10,000 Faces of a Hero by Joseph Campbell is something to check out. One thing that you said just a little while ago that I want to tap into mm -hmm. that I think is, is probably vital for a gaming group at a table is a sense of trust, a sense that the people around the table are not going to judge you or treat you harshly by you exploring a set of values that maybe aren't yours, you know, mm -hmm. they're the characters, and you're trying to explore what are the moral ramifications of adopting that kind of value system. If you don't have trust around the table, that's going to be a very awkward thing to do. And I don't oh, think people yeah. would do it at all. They would just probably fall into a very silly mode and the whole game gets really kind of dumb at that point, I think. Well, yeah, it, it, it's a, it's a classic uh, thing to say, oh, 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 I'm just kidding. I didn't mean to stab that child over there. That's going to have, you know, repercussions inside of the story. So, you know, are you sure you want to explore that? But I mean, right. You know? Well, even if you didn't want to adopt the evil persona or adopt a set of values or in D and I guess the alignment mm. of something that was really alien to you. And it was on the dark side of the spectrum. Even if you were one of the goodly alignments, the potential of a role playing game is that you're going to find yourself 
in situations that do have dire consequences. Oh, absolutely. And even if you pick the best, quote, most noble course of action, there's going to be some suffering. Right. right? Somebody has to pay the piper sometimes. And we don't want to find ourselves in those situations in real life. That's no. that's a disastrous day if you have to make these kind of choices of being the hero. Mm-hmm. And yet we actively pursue those situations around the table. Uh, so you don't necessarily have to be the monster. No. What I'm saying is you're in situations that you really wouldn't want to be in in a real life situation. No, I know what you mean. I mean, we see a lot of that in, in different types of fiction, too. I mean, one of my favorite authors, uh, Dean Coots, he explores several different types of human monsters. You know, the fun house, it was, you know, somebody that had, like, you know, something wrong with his brain. No choice but to be a monster um, with shattered, somebody with an obsession that had to uh, follow somebody in order to fulfill some desire that they had. Uh, a very human emotion taken to an extreme, Right where you have uh, watchers where the humanity, you know, stuffed into the, into the suit of this uh, picture of human companionship and also humanity stuffed into, I guess, again, a monster, right? I have a very controversial theory about what role-playing games do that other games don't do. And the fact that some players don't pursue that potential they're trying to screw in the screw with a hammer. They're not using the right tool to get the effect that they want. I might ruffle some listeners' ears here, but... What's new? <laughs> role-playing games are a prime potential for you to adopt a value system that may be yours, but it may be alien to you. But you adopt that value system and you personify it via this character who's in a fantastic setting with a fantastic set of conflicts before him... And you empathize with the character with those values and you exert moral choices using those values and you explore what the consequences are of those choices. A a dungeon master has to really be good to deal with that because all your moral choices have to have pretty accurate consequences. And then, of course, you have this layer of fantasy over it. So it really becomes difficult to make that consequence seem like it's a uh, reaction. For every action is a reaction. And to be consistent with the reaction so that the characters get a a lively feel of the setting that they're in and realizing that when they perform murder, there are consequences. Right. And the consequences outweigh any benefit that you get by performing the murder. And we hear about the very tropey murder hobo play (laughs) style. I don't think that's real role play. That's That's, just... It's hack and slash all over again. I I don't even understand the value of that because if you want to do hack and slash... Why not find a board game where you have a little miniature and you run across the board and you roll dice to see if the thing in front of you dies when you attack it or not? We have that. It's called Warhammer. That's not (laughs) roleplay. And yet people will sit around playing Dungeons and Dragons or a lot of other systems saying that they're roleplaying when in reality they're just hack and slashing. The tactical combat is a level playing field for the, the fight between two enemies who feel that they're they're both moral and right in their cause have a trial by combat for all intents and purposes whoever might wins right the divine right is governed by the dice role playing games should exercise the question of what 
should I be doing, not what can I be doing. And when you look at the hardback books of any role-playing game, it just tells you what you can be doing. Mm -hmm. It gives you all the bonuses and penalties for this skill and that skill and this feat and that feat and Mm -hmm. your background bonus. And it just tells you all these things that you can do. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm afraid that players now stop there. And they say, oh, I want to be a flying bird man because I can fly. That's what you can do. That's not what you should do. And a lot of the games that we listen to around the table of the store is people exercising, what can I do? Mm-hmm. Can I rage three times a, in in one day? Really? I can rage three times in one day? Great. Yeah, you can. Should you? That's a totally different question. And I just don't find people that are exploring the should I. And I think that's really the, where the real value of story comes from. Absolutely. The real value of role playing comes from is what should I be doing if I've adopted this value system? And again, it doesn't have to be your value system. That's the freedom of role playing is you can become something that you're not. Explore what the consequences are of doing that. Mm-hmm. If you go around killing villagers, man, there should be some really quick, swift consequence. One of the best things about uh, storytelling is the idea that the enemy, the big bad, as we call them, yeah. uh, doesn't wake up saying, I'm going to be lawful evil today. I'm going to be chaotic evil. They think they're the good guy. They're Mm -hmm. pursuing their set of values, and they think that there are maybe some sacrifices that have to be made for their values to be actualized. The Russian army isn't invading the Ukraine because they want to be murderers and they want to be hated by the rest of the world. They think that there is some good to be done if Ukraine is assimilated back into Russia. The idea that the big bad shows up and he's got skulls on his armor is also kind of this weird black and white antiquated method. I don't know anybody that's going to wake up and put skulls on their armor. That's just kind of a weird, perverse thing. You have to be psychotic to do right. that. Chaotic thinking, but wouldn't a chaotic person, you know, even have the thought to wear clothes? I mean, wear yeah. armor for that right. matter. Yeah. I, mean, I think World of Darkness Maybe does. they need to poop. Maybe they need to poop. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, usually the answer for my toddler. Um, they, <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. Uh, World of Darkness, I think, is one of those stories that, uh, those settings that make it such that the bad guy is kind of great. And, and in the end, everybody in the story, they are all unnatural. They are not humans. You know, you have your vampires, you have your werewolves, you have your mages. Well, those are the main three, right? And then your there's Republicans, your Democrats. You know, in the in D and D, it's either lawful or it's chaotic. It's either good or it's evil, right? World of Darkness, it's great. They have a uh, a three tier system. It's called the Triot, right? You have the Wild, the Weaver, and the Worm. the The Wild is this pure force of dynamic creation. It does nothing but create. It's the spark of life, but it's also cancer. the The Weaver, it is the thing that basically creates structure in inside the the universe. So it takes the things that the wild has created and gives them some sort of structure part of it. And then there's the worm, which is this thing of pure decay, right? And of course it's, it's things like rotting leaves, things that make fertilizer, but also corruptive death. I thought it was, it's just a really awesome way to look at um, a moral system because it's not necessarily good or bad. It is merely will fun stuff. Magic the Gathering, the card game, has a very interesting and similar view of the energies of life and the energies of death and the energies of choice and free will versus 
uh, emotion and chaos and entropy. And they've got this great five-colored system that explains all that. On the surface, it seems simplistic, but then you realize that each of these colors have relationships and blends, and you really get this cool matrix of a reality that is played through a card game. I love it for that. I actually am running the the Strixhaven uh, campaign right now for uh, Strixhaven uh, School of Mages campaign supplement, all yeah. the fun stuff. I've been playing Magic ever since I was a little kid. You know, we didn't know how to play the game when I was, you know, back in 1993, when my father brought home alpha cards. Do you still have those? I do, actually. You have alpha Magic cards? Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Wow. I, they they came to me after, after my dad passed away back in 2014. I love color philosophy. I actually wrote this, like, document that explained color philosophy using symbolic logic so I could try to figure out how to place the characters and what sort of, I guess, mana colors work with them. It was, I want to say, like, almost like a fugue state that I went into. <laughs> I was tearing this thing up. I love math. But, yeah, love color philosophy. Pork who, as you may know, is creating a tabletop skirmish game mm-hmm. called Gauntlets of Glory, yep. uh, also implemented the color philosophy wheel or uh, image, if you will, into creating the races, uh, into identifying the races and which color philosophy. So, yeah, tell us uh, just a minute of that, work about, I think it's uh, especially interesting when you get into the sub-races. Well, you have... Five. Again, I use the same Magic the Gathering template of five colors, red, green, blue, black, and white. I assigned a D&D race to each one of those colors. Blue was dwarves. Red were goblins. Purple or black were drow. Green were elves. And then white, or in my game it was uh, yellow, ended up being humans. And that was very easy. It was a very simple thing to put in. Uh, but then I had to justify what happens when you have a white-green character, and that would be a human elf, and you come up with the concept of the half-elf. D&D has done all the work for you. It's all out there. Right. Uh, half-elves, halflings, goblins. Yeah, um, I, I would say almost the orc idea of red. That was and the that, red one. And the half the half orc being your your red white character. That's exactly right. Yeah, yep. that's exactly what happened. <laughs> so he's got it all uh, done up in a Venn diagram. <laughs> well, it started off as pentagon, <laughs> yeah. and then inside that became a pentagram, and then there Don't were the users at home, right? There was yeah, <laughs> you'd have to see it. It, it was no, a I work of art. And the interesting part was all that work was done before me. I didn't create much of it. I just had to justify the relationships. But you could look into Magic: The Gathering or look into Dungeons and Dragons, and all that color theory and art was done for you. It makes storytelling very easy. That's really cool that you mentioned that. (laughs) Yeah. I I, I do find it fascinating. When we teach people how to play magic, Mm -hmm. a lot of people will teach magic and they go straight to the mechanics. Right. This is how you tap. This is what damage is. This is what power and toughness is. And Mm -hmm. it just becomes this overwhelming deluge of mechanical stuff and a lot of new players of a certain ilk are going to not respond to that well. It's just too much information too fast. But what I found that seems to sit well with people is if you approach teaching magic in the theme of it. Mm -hmm. Here's the idea of magic. You're a magician and you're tapping into a philosophy and that philosophy is being depicted by colors, but it's depicted by all the spells in your spell book and you're trying to conquer uh, an opponent who has 
maybe a similar or a very, very different philosophy. And you mm-hmm. could see how your philosophy and his philosophy interact mm-hmm. via spell work. And then you start hitting with the mechanics and the mechanics mm-hmm. now have a context and they seem to be an easier pill to swallow. But by then they've already chosen their color and or colors. So they're a little more invested. They're a little more committed. They're kind of ready and they've got the mindset of what kind of magician or spellcaster they're going to be. I always cringe when I'm teaching magic and I say, so what What colors really speak to you after I've described all the colors? And they go, oh, I really like black red. And I go, well, I think, uh, I think this is over. Let's uh, make sure this person need to find doesn't, another game store. doesn't know where we live. <laughs> As a person who likes to play the Empire when I play a Star Wars game, uh, you know, I like to get to be the bad guy because I have to be the good guy every day. So let's not judge so quickly, huh? Some people think you're the bad guy every day. If we had um, customers out there that are looking for a game to join, if that was you, what would you do? How would you join a game? Um, I would definitely reach out in in the the social circles that we have here in San Antonio, uh, places like the Night's Watch Facebook group, just showing up to the store and having a conversation with somebody. I've made plenty of friends just sitting here chit-chatting about about various different things. Somebody was looking at the board and they were like, oh, what's Mortborg? And I was like, actually, I played that. <laughs> Talk to people. You know, you'll find people that are interested in it, even though they aren't wearing a big, you know, placard on their uh, the front of their, their shirt saying, I want to play D&D. But even that, if you get a T-shirt made that says, I want to play D&D, somebody will say, hey, I want to play D&D too. You know, Brandon, it sounds like a new T-shirt idea right there. Or even better, you could say something like, I want to role play. That's different. <laughs> That's that latex rubber shirt. Uh, wrapping up this episode, this is Pork and Brenda of Nightwatch Games hey. with our guest, Glenn Hahn. Uh, thanks for being here. 